This is episode 169 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Tupperware and Brownie Wise. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I am so honored to welcome an author with us today. Uh, Bob Keeling is with us. He's the author of four books, the founder of three Florida landmarks, which sounds like we need to hear a little bit more about that, and get this six-time Emmy-winning journalist. Uh, He's been a reporter in Florida for many, many years, had a very prestigious career there. So I'm uh, so pleased to welcome him to the show. So uh, welcome, Bob. Oh, Jennifer, thanks so much for having me. So we're here to talk about your book, which was originally published under the title Tupperware Unsealed, and then was republished with this really great title, Life of the Party, the remarkable story of how Brownie Wise built and lost a Tupperware party empire. And I just want to read a little quote here from Washington Post, which did this lovely review and article about the book. Uh, They described it as exhaustively researched and skillfully detailed. Keeling's thorough and engrossing account chronicles the pair's unlikely, dynamic, and often tumultuous relationship and Wise's meteoric rise and subsequent precipitous fall from grace within the company she made a success. Quite a mouthful there. Yeah, that's that, but that really captures the yin and the yang of the relationship between she and Earl Tupper. Um, and it and it showed what happened, unfortunately, in the 50s to a woman who had leaned in and worked so hard and really built this company and put millions of dollars in Earl Tupper's pockets only for him to basically chop her off at the knees at the end and cast her out of the company with very little to show for it. It's quite a tale. So let's start with Mr. Tupper. Who was he and how did he invent Tupperware? Well, Earl Tupper was a genius. It's it's just that simple. And he had always said to himself that, you know, he would be a millionaire by the time he was 30. Mm. And he was um, a dogged inventor. And to show you this sense of purpose that he had, he actually delivered his own daughter when she was born and she was a breech baby. Oh, wow. Feet first. So th- this is a guy, he was no shrinking violet, you know, <laughs> and, so. you know but he, he, he was just exhaustive in his experimentation. And he really hit on the concept of the vacuum seal by basing it on a paint can. Hmm. That really led to the revolutionary product we know as Tupperware. You know, this vacuum seal worked and it saved people money. His only problem was he really didn't know how to sell it. 
And so remind me of where Tupperware came from. So was he experimenting with plastics? Is that how he came up with that material? Yes. And and his brilliance was his constant experimentation to give it what he called flowability. Mm. You know, he his he would have his sons you know working with him day and night to figure out that process. And again, a lot needs to be said for his genius. Because mm. if you remember before Tupperware came around, plastic was kind of seen as brittle and cheap mm-hmm. and really um, not all that attractive. But just due to his dogged research, he comes up with this beautiful translucent product mm. that he you know, made the original millionaire line with. And it, 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 it was a game changer mm-hmm. entirely. But it was that flowability. It was that constant experimentation with colors. And then finally, he came up with that beautiful product. And he was on his way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned the sales model. So what was the sales model like before Brownie Wise came along? He kind of stuck it in a in um, department stores. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And people really didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> well, you had to know how to make the seal, the world famous yeah. burp, you know. And people really didn't know what to do with it. And there was, it wasn't just brownie. There was a variety of people. There was the uh, uh, Magellans in, um, in the Boston area. You had uh, the blocks were, uh, the Damagellas, I'm sorry. And the blocks uh, were a couple of really early pioneering families. And then you had Brownie, uh, who was working for Stanley at the time. But she had Stanley a, a young, cleaner. Yeah, just yeah, the dowdy, right. you know, home <laughs> products. And but she had a young protege named Gary McDonald, who was going through the department store in downtown Detroit and happened to see it and thought it would make a fantastic demonstration model uh-huh. and brought it back to Brownie there in suburban Detroit. And she agreed with him. And there was this sort of uh, confluence of events where Brownie was wanting to rise up into management at Stanley home products. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of like, um, no, honey, you know, management <laughs> is no place for a woman now go back home. And, and that made her angry. Mm-hmm. And she saw the potential of Tupperware. And she started including it in the line that, you know, her, um, her folks were selling there and it really took off. Yeah. If I recall, there's uh, something about you could do a carrot test on it. And that really resonated with me like, okay, take these carrots, take Tupperware, go put these carrots in whatever you normally store your food in, in the refrigerator and come back in a few days and compare what your carrots look like if they were kept in the Tupperware dish versus how you would normally store them. And as a person who stores leftovers in the refrigerator, I just immediately flashed on, yes, what did we use back then? You know, we just put things on plates and, you know. An old shower uh, cap. (laughs) Right. You know, and and they would do it with (laughs) lettuce too. And it was very dramatic. Mm -hmm. And and you struck on something that, that really needs to be said. It's very important. This product worked. Yeah. So it wasn't like this was some multimedia pyramid scheme scam. Mm-hmm. This saved people money. And remember, coming out of per- post-World War II America, things were very Spartan. People were lining up for certain you know, uh, goods 
So you need to stretch every single dollar that you could. And that's a really important point. All right. Tell us who Brownie was. How much time you got? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she had a whole life, right? Yeah, she was a minimally educated, but extremely ambitious young woman from the South who grew up kind of a lonely child because her mother was divorced and she would go on uh, speech making tour speech tours for the hat makers union hmm. and Brownie would often be left in the company of an aunt or another relative, but she also learned to speak. She would go out with her mom and saw the process of motivational speaking and, and that served her well. She saw what it took to, to motivate people. Um, she uh, ended up taking, um, uh, well, she lived in Detroit because she married a gentleman named um, Robert Wise. And together they had one son, Jerry. Oh, yeah. And she was working as a secretary at Bendix at the time. But it was a, um, let's call it an uneven marriage. Mm-hmm. And he had some uh, undiagnosed psychological issues. And it became clear to her that she was ca- he was capable of violence. Uh-huh. And so she ended up splitting up with him. Well, now she's a single mom who's got to raise a son on her own. Mm-hmm. And it was about that time that a guy from Stanley comes knocking at her door and gives this kind of fumbling. Oh, you know, that, that, you know, here's, here's our mops and cleaners and things like that. And she's like, my God, I could do better. Than I that. could do better than that. And it, so heaven funny. knows she could. Right. Yeah. And that got her on the way to this sort of direct selling. And then, as I mentioned to you, she got frustrated as she moved up very quickly with Stanley because she was so good with it. And then uh, went over to Tupperware and, and it caught the attention of Earl Tupper. And, you know, he was doing research, trying to figure out, okay, if it is selling where and why. Mm-hmm. And he sent one of his field guys out there to ask her, you know, just and, and literally the question was, what in the hell are you doing to move so much of the product? Mm-hmm. And she went into this whole notion of going into women's homes. And, you know, it wasn't just a sell. It was a it was an event. Mm-hmm. And women got to get out of the house and get together and play games. And it was a very soft sell kind of feminine way to do it, but it was working. So that that's the beginning of her legacy. I think the other thing that you mentioned and this, again, you know, you have to be kind of hands-on to do this is this drop test. Oh right? yeah. It, yeah. So I, I guess it's then they also mentioned that a lot of storage containers back then were glass. Sure. Yeah. Can you imagine? She chucks it across the room and it just bounces <laughs> and, and not a drop spilled. Uh-huh. A sold, right? Oh, sure. And I mean, and the women, you know, you got to burp it like a baby. What is this product? You know, it was revolutionary. But the other thing was it, it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. It was something you could display. As I mentioned before, it's not the cheap kind of brittle plastic this is something new and revolutionary and it worked. I mean, as you see, this is kind of a perfect storm because not only is it this effective product, but all of a sudden now it's attractive to women who might want to sell it on their own uh-huh. and make a little bit of their own money. What a, what a thought. Mm-hmm. So, th- so she brought only her own salesmanship and her motivation, but she, she also brought a lot of sales, right? 
Oh, sure. This was her thing. Motivation was her genius. And um, that's really the key here of the yin and the yang between Tupper and Wise. Was she figured out a way for him to bring his baby to the world? Mm. And she did it in a big way. Tupper's guy came down there and said, hey, what do you think about moving to Florida? And we'll give oh. you all of South Florida. And she's like, oh, let me think about it. Yes. Oh, I see. And that's how she ends up down there in the early 50s. That's where it, where it really all starts to snowball. And he gave he did give her a position inside the company. Isn't that right? Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens is there was a, there was a distribution program while she's running as an independent contractor down south. And she's just killing it. <laughs> and this, this supplier cannot get her product fast enough. She can't get her sales kits mocked up quickly enough and accurately enough for her liking because she's doing so well and she's getting frustrated. And that leads to the dramatic first interaction between she and Tupper. And, you know, she's just mad. So she calls the home office and she demands to speak with him. Mm. And she's she said, Mr. Tupper, this is Brownie Wise from South Florida. And I've just got to tell you that this is just not gonna do. And you know, you don't you don't speak <laughs> down to Earl Tupper like that, you know. Uh-huh. But he knew exactly who she was and he said that. He goes, Yes, I know who you are. Mm. And uh so it's the meeting of geniuses, it's the confluence of genius right there. And, and he was smart enough and humble enough to go, okay, well, what's your idea on all this? And he called some of his top distributors together to a meeting out on Long Island in 1951. And that's where they hatched this idea of Tupperware home parties. Oh. And he made Brownie Wise the general sales manager. And think about that for a minute. This is a single mom you know, with a, you know, major title now within this company, talk about revolutionary Mm. and, you know, she's just way ahead of her time. So, so, you know, now we're on the brink. Yeah. This will probably seem obvious to a lot of our listeners, but I think it's worth remembering what the role of women was post world war II. Yeah. Can you talk about about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, when did women ever get recognition for mopping the floor? Mm -hmm. You know, when did they ever get recognition for having a clean carpet when, when their husband came home or dinner on the table? Now, all of a sudden you had this prospect of being able to go out with your husband's permission. A lot of the time, you know, this was still, Father's knows best fifties, mm-hmm. but but now you see how revolutionary it is, how feminizing it is mm-hmm. that all of a sudden now a woman can make her own money, and that aspect of it started to snowball as well. So again, you have this confluence of events yeah. that's setting the stage for this just fantastic success that Tupperware had. It's building. I know there's a lot of suspicion about multi-level marketing structures, but my impression from the way you described it is it wasn't quite like that with Tupperware. So what were the parties and consultants? How was that all organized? Well, we covered it a little bit in terms of 
the multi-level marketing, in this sense, you had a very viable product that worked. Mm-hmm. Not only did it save people money, it made distributors and managers money. So it, it, it wasn't any sort of a scam. It worked. Mm-hmm. And you had this network where, all right, so let's say Brownie goes out and throws a party. She's also looking for potential candidates to become salespeople themselves. And she had this whole list of qualifications. You know, she must be single. She must need money, you know, must present well. Mm-hmm. So not, they were serving a dual purpose there. They were not only selling the product at the parties. They were also looking for potential recruits. Right. And that was an important part of the process. Mm-hmm. So you had, you know, the, the sales folks, you had the managers, you had the distributors, and it just went up like that. And they started to spring up all over the country as the product continued to sell better. And I will say that you know, once they had this conference and they realized that this distribution wasn't going to work, they formed Tupperware Home Parties. Mm-hmm. And that's where this really all took off. And Brownie became the general sales manager. And it was just this very humble um, operation at the beginning where they set up shop at an old airplane hangar mm. at Orlando Municipal Airport. So actually, Tupperware started in Orlando its freshman year uh-huh. in an old airplane hangar. But you know, with Brownie's genius, also with Gary McDonald, the kid who uh, originally brought Tupperware to her, he was in it as well. Mm-hmm. And from this little group, this amazing entity sprung. So now we're talking about like 1952. And, you know, I, I do think that in some ways, Tupperware is kind of a Florida story. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're from there. You know a lot about Florida. Mm-hmm. What? Why do you think that that's the case? How does Florida play? In I'll tell Columbus? you exactly why. Okay. Earl Tupper hated unions. Oh. And he wanted a non-union state and he wanted cheap land. And where else would you find both? Florida, of course. I see. Now, now here's a really funny aspect to this. One of the places he was looking at land was in Stark, Florida, which was the home of the state prison and the electric chair. Can you imagine? I see. But but he ended up getting this land down um, not too far from where Disney World would end up being established because he got it cheap. Mm -hmm. And he went in there and walked it himself and staked it, you know, down there on the Orange Blossom Trail, very Americana, Mm -hmm. very Florida. But it was because it was cheap. And it was because Florida did not have unions. That's how it ended up down here. There was also an aspect. There was a there was a part of the operation in Texas, mm. but that ended up drying up, and it all uh, came to the Sunshine State. Yeah, that's really interesting. So they got this kind of exponential growth across the country by recruiting, you know, women that weren't otherwise occupied and and who could bring their their all to uh, making their own little business and being successful. And how much success did they see? Oh, tons. When they started out in 1952 in Orlando, you just see this explosive growth. And it's all about uh, Brownie rallying the troops and more, more, more. And 
boy, wouldn't this be great if you just tried a little bit more and what you could do for your family? And, and that really caught fire. And the, comp- the competitive aspect of it caught fire and the esprit de corps. And they started having these jubilees where people would pay their own dime to come down on what was basically a family vacation mm. to be trained to figure out how to sell more Tupperware. And through, the, through this process, like 52, Tupper was just enamored with her. Mm-hmm. Finally, he had found someone to bring his baby to the world. And what was great um, was I was able to go to the Smithsonian and spend a week there with their papers, Jennifer. And, and so I'm seeing the interaction between the two of them in their oh, own words. Right. So this oh, cool. book is coming from the most primary of possible sources, the life of the party book. Mm-hmm. And so they're telling their own stories, which I, I really love to do. So you see the rise of the company through 52 and 53. And then they get this idea that Brownie's story would be great to take nationwide. Ah. And Tupper signed off with this um, PR firm out of New York, Reuter and Finn, that said, you know, we need to make Brownie the poster girl for Tupperware. Okay. He made a very conscious decision to do that. And that really became a big issue down the road as Brownie's celebrity started to explode. But as it did, so did the sales mm-hmm. to where, okay, April 1954, she becomes the first woman ever on the cover of Business Week. Isn't that crazy? That's just crazy to me. You would think so. But when you see what she'd done uh-huh. and the absolute devotion mm. that she inspired through her motivational techniques, I mean, women would compete to win the dress off her back as a prize. Oh, Someone yeah. have to lose 20 and 30 pounds to fit into <laughs> it. Now that is devotion. <laughs> yeah. So um, she really did have this spellbinding type quality. They compared her to uh, an old fashioned female preacher, Carrie. I can't remember her exact name, but that article is, is amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing I was lucky enough to do was interview some of these pioneering executives who were there along the way. And one of them told me, he goes, you know, I was a, I was a jaded guy from Wall Street. And I come in there and I'm converted to the religion that was Tupperware. It was like a religion, hmm. people helping people, people wanting to do well. I, I just picked up on the whole thing and was swept away. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So those were kind of the happy times. Mm-hmm. And, and as we talked about at the beginning, their relationship began to unravel. And mm-hmm. what, what do you think started that? Well, there was several things. Um, there were some people who got jealous of Brownie. This this was all about recognition as much as it was about making money. And, and I mean, Brownie was getting tons of it. But again, this was with Mr. Tupper's blessing mm-hmm. and pulling in lots of money, lots of sales. But some of the other distributors are like, hey, whoa, hello, what about us? I see. And they actually tried to stage an overthrow, oh. her, which is oh. detailed in the book. 
in the life of the party book. And it didn't happen, but it put a big uh, dent in sales. And that was like one red flag. And then um, as 55 and 56 come along, I mean, Brownie is now totally taken with her own publicity. Let's just, you know, let's just say it like it (laughs) is. Acknowledge that. Okay. It is. I mean, (laughs) you know, and the publicity now, you know, if it was um, Cosmo or something, it's like, oh, here's the it girl. And oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. Tupper is, you know, he's nominal to this, but it's all her. And I'm sure he didn't like hearing that. Right. Um, And Brownie arguably started to take her eye off the ball a little bit. Mm. Um, the the real watershed was in July of fifty seven. She she had actually bought this little island near her rather palatial home in Kissimmee, mm. and she decides that she wants to have a luau mm-hmm. of the top distributors as part of the annual jubilee. Well, that's not a great idea in Central Florida in the middle of the summer. Oh. To throw any sort of a party where you're out in the open and you don't have a lot of cover. Oh. And sure enough, a big storm blew in and the whole thing just turned into a gigantic mess. Oh. And people were injured in boat accidents and oh. lawsuits filed. And oh, Tupper my. Furious. Oh. So, um, there's a lot to that story, and I was lucky enough to find some uh, depositions that had been sealed for many, many years. And with the court's permission, I was able to unseal them and get some very interesting retellings of what happened that night. I see. And Tupper very, very um, understandably was concerned that she had put his the, the business in jeopardy by doing that. Uh-huh. She'd also written her own self-help book called Best Wishes. Oh, yeah. Brownie Wise. Well, now any entrepreneur is almost expected to do something like that. Uh, But back then in 57, it's like, okay, is this about Tupperware or is it about her? Uh And so it really started to get strained. And and with all of that as a backdrop, Tupper is – who's kind of a bit of a paranoid individual um, mm-hmm. is concerned that government taxation could take his fortune that he's made. And so he's starting to dangle the company for sale. Oh, And he's thinking, well, having this uh, outspoken executive who just happens to be female may not be a real attractive calling card. And he's thinking Brownie's becoming a liability. Now, fortunately, all these boat accidents at, at the Luau, they were able to quash that in the media. They were able to pull in some favors. Hmm. So it didn't get out widely what had happened. But still, that was a huge red flag to Tupper. And as you see the memos between them at the end of 57, it's very strained. I see. And so he goes down there in early 58, intent to just fire her. Right then and there, just you're out. And some of his top guys, including this Gary McDonald, who was there from the very beginning, convinced mm-hmm. him, you can't do that. You can't do that. She's got all of these, you know, and thousands of dealers now who are just so devoted right. to her. 
So they basically just kind of came up with this cynical scheme to push her out, claiming semi-retirement. And it was really kind of an embarrassment to her. You know, it really wasn't the soft landing she was looking for. She ended up filing suit against them. Oh, really? I see. And settling for a year's salary. You know, she walked away with like $35,000. Oh, boy. And he ended up selling the company for $16 million. Yikes. all drugs. Do you think his concern about having a female executive was justified for that time? Oh, I suppose so. I mean, let's figure, you know, 1958. This isn't the most forward of times yet. There's misogyny all over the place. I guess. And she had no um, golden parachute. She had no stock options. She was playing a role to the point where, you know, this beautiful home that she had on a peninsula, they just kicked her out of it. Oh, wow. And then they basically just let it rot. And she stayed in a home on the other side of the lake. And it had to hurt, I'm sure. Yeah. Can you see this was her previous life that was just being allowed to rot away? And she had some business ventures, and certainly she was not penniless. She was an entrepreneur and she got on with her life. But the sad part is, she never really got to have the Tupperware homecoming that she deserved. And Tupper wrote her out of the history of the company, which was dead wrong. Yeah, tell us, tell us about that. You can even mention her name around the company. And, you know, it's one thing if you decide you don't want to go on in business with somebody, but it's another when you try to erase them as if they never existed. Yeah, that's what's so crazy to me. It And, and well, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could just say he didn't get it. But to change company history when you've already had so much publicity and accolades, that just seems weird to me. It was mean-spirited. Let's just call it what it was. I see. Mm-hmm. And there were some executives inside the company that took a certain glee in that. Wow. And they liked to see her fail. You know, when she started a cosmetics company and it didn't go well, there was there was a couple, there, you know, you see the memos. Oh, Mr. Tupper, hello. Just wanted to let you know that um, so-and-so, Mrs. Wise, uh, company went under, you know, that kind of thing. Wow. And, uh, Amazing. Yeah. Th- that part was unfortunate, but that was many, many, many years ago. And since then, because of uh, books and a documentary on PBS and her legacy has risen mm-hmm. and the company rightfully now does acknowledge her every bit as much as Tupper, but it was a long time in coming. Yeah. Pretty, I mean, that's what I really enjoyed about your book was, was learning about her. There's some thing that I remember about her, he, him writing to her. I just thought this was particularly significant. He wrote to her and said, yeah, you know, the spread looks great. I don't know if this was for the business week or something else. He said, but I always prefer the photos that have the product in them. Mm-hmm. And to me, it was, it was so revealing that he, that he would feel obliged to say something like that, which already shows something, but also that you don't, that he didn't get it, you know, that it's people, it's salespeople often that move your product, not just the product. 
There's no doubt about it. Without Brownie Wise, we might not have ever heard of Tupperware. Mm-hmm. Maybe we would. Like I said, the Damagellas are a great anchor family. You know, the blocks out in Los Angeles. There, there are many of them. And, and I will say, too, um, I think one of the important le- uh, legacies of Tupperware was um, their openness to other cultures, African-Americans. Mm. Um, Anna Tate was a distributor from the Northeast who refused to stay in hotels that would not let her African-American manager and just, you know, mm. salespeople stay there. And, and I, they deserve a lot of credit for that. Tupperware is just this amazing Americana story of, uh-huh. of the 1950s and on. And it helped a lot of people. That's the bottom line. It's, this isn't the Brownie show. This is the thousands of people who really got a big leg up through this revolutionary product. So who did he end up sell, selling Tupperware to? Rexall Drugs. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Justin Dart was the CEO. And he said, okay, one thing we have got to do is take this company international. Uh-huh. And they absolutely did. And that opened up a whole new, you know, it was a boom for them and really made them the multinational corporation that they are today um, was that decision. Right. Uh-huh. And so what's the situation today? Can you still buy Tupperware? Oh, sure. And they've, they've broadened out into cosmetics and all types of things, but yeah, it's available all over the world. And, you know, they have a whole bunch of imitators who came along later, you know, not only for, you know, the revolutionary seal, but also the way the product is sold, you know, Mary Kay Ash and, Mm. you know, those Mm -hmm. types of folks, but but, that model Brownie led the way that's for sure. Yeah, this is really interesting. It's funny, after I was reading about your book and so forth, I started thinking about all those kitchens across the United States that have a piece of Tupperware, you know, like stuck in the back corner somewhere because they they last so long. It's so, oh, yeah, it's like, yeah. It's, it's like a part of the family, uh-huh, right? you know, and, and a lot of times it's many parts of the family, you know, oh, look at this. I've got from the millionaire line and oh, look what I've got from this particular era. I mean, I, I think it's just charming mm-hmm. the way, you know, folks who've been involved in Tupperware, it's very much intrinsic with their families. And I think that says a lot about the quality of the product through the years. And, you know, just to, to think that it comes back to, you know, Tupper and Wise and, you know, this little Central Florida operation, I, I find it so compelling, you know, because that, that's what I do is I mine this vein of pre-Disney stories here in, in greater Orlando because people have this sense that there was no history here before the theme parks mm. and nothing could be further from the truth. I have had more fun with just all these different stories and certainly brownies brownies is chief among them um what a trailblazer she was what what a brilliant motivator and speaker for somebody who really n- didn't have a lot of formal education it's nice to see that she is getting her due and what got you interested in her story from the beginning yeah this this is really it it's the sense of okay i'm i'm a serious five alarm fire history nerd the first time I heard, I'm like, 
okay, Brownie Wise, who is this woman? Why have I never heard of her? Uh -huh. And if she was the first lady of Tupperware, why in the world did she get fired? Uh-huh. But then I found out her story got buried. Her legacy got buried. And there was a very specific reason why a lot of people never heard of her. And it was up to historians like us to, to bring it back to the, you know, the nation's consciousness. And, uh, you know, now she's getting her due. Mm -hmm. there, so there are some hints that there was a movie potentially to be made from your book. And what's happening with that? Well, originally, yeah, it was... Um, optioned by Sony and there were a lot of plans. And then unfortunately the North Koreans hacked Sony. Oh, and those plans all went away. Oh, I see. However, I see. Mm -hmm. there, there are still some very interesting plans in the works for different potential um, uh, ways to bring this story to the people. So um, th there could be some interesting Tupperware in the future, whether it be on the big screen or the stage or TV, the possibilities are still out there. Yeah, I think I think people would would love this story. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, such an interesting dynamic person, and and also, you know, set in that time period. I, I just think it would make a great. I, I think it would be great on the screen. I hope somebody steps forward with it. So, are there scripts out there still circulating, or not or, that I know of? Oh, I see. Okay, so that that just sort of ended that potential for for the time being. Well, maybe. Time, well, those are the operative words right there. Mm -hmm. So maybe my podcast will bring it to somebody's attention. <laughs> that would be great, actually. I, my ears are wide open for anyone in your audience who might have an uh, interesting proposal. I'm always willing to listen. Oh, I'm sure there'd be tons of actresses who would love to have that role. I couldn't agree more. And without getting into all the machinations of it, we, we've come close. And there are a couple who are pretty dear to my heart that I would love to see take a crack at it. but having been through this process, uh, you know, the whole Hollywood thing, and it, it's not easy. I see. It's really not easy. Huh. But, you know, if, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And I do firmly believe that it is meant to be. And I do believe there's an actress out there who will bring Brownie's story to the big screen. I, I, you're not alone. I, I'm totally with you in terms of thinking, you know, this needs to be a film. Mm -hmm. in, in, in it, because there are so many messages in it, mm -hmm. um, important takeaways. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I do think it's a, it's, it's time will come. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, it's ripe for the, ripe for the taking. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for spending time with us today, talking about this great book. And before I let you go, I'll give you in a second here, I'll give you a chance to talk to the listeners about where they can follow your work. But I did just want to ask you about a couple of the other books that you've written. Can you? Sure. Because it sounds as though there might be kind of a Florida theme in them. Definitely. Definitely. Um, one I'm really proud of was about the tragic country rocker, Graham Parsons. Yep. I have one of my favorites. Calling Me Home. Um, Graham Parsons and the Roots of Country Rock. And one of the things that came out of that book is we actually located, with the help of, of his childhood best friend, 
what had been his little teen club in downtown Winter Haven. And it was this lean to storage facility that I think if I would have pushed on it real hard, it might have come down. Uh But since the book came out, um, a collective of folks uh, in Winter Haven, some very intelligent business people and the company that actually owned that building all got together and it has since been renovated Mm. and it is now an historic listening room. It is a state of Florida landmark. Oh, nice. And in 2017, we welcomed Graham's um, bandmate from the birds, Chris Hillman there. Oh yeah. Right. Oh, how cool to play. And that was one of the most emotional (gasps) evenings that I can recall as he's playing turn, turn, turn. And, all of that in the building where Graham got his professional start as a folky in 1964 and just bringing it all back full circle. And Jennifer, I'll tell you, that is one of my main raison d'etre for doing these books is I look for places that are ripe for historic preservation opportunities. I see. And one of them is the Jack Kerouac house here in Orlando, which was connected with my first book. It's now Orlando's first and only international literary landmark. It's in the National Register of Historic Places. How cool. And again, it was just a fire trap when I came upon it almost 25 years ago. (sighs) And um, that's a major passion. And right now, I am writing about the Beatles in Florida. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Specifically 1964. And it has become... Uh, uh, an unbelievable um, journey that I had no idea would take me so many interesting places. So that will be out in 2022, hopefully from University Press of Florida. Mm, Nice. And you also have a book about Elvis? I do indeed. It's called Elvis Ignited. And the book makes the case that his career would not have happened without Florida and Floridians. Mm. So it's not a nostalgia book as much as it is making the case that Florida really helped break him nationwide. I see. He played more live shows in Florida in 1956, the year everything exploded for him, than in places like Texas and Tennessee and Mississippi combined. Oh, I see. His ultra-controversial manager, Tom Parker, has quite the story in Florida. Hmm. The story of his first million-selling song, Heartbreak Hotel, is all in Florida, including the writing of it. I see. So there's a lot of uh, Elvis here in the Sunshine State. Well, I really appreciate the work that you do. I think it's really great that you are uh, revealing these things and you know, just yeah, educating us about what's happened in the past. The Graham Parsons thing, I had no idea about, and I'm a big fan of his. Oh, his music. story, and thanks for the kind words, by the way. His um, his he's right, right out of a Faulkner novel, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> but it also it's it's a really cautionary tale. Everybody talks about oh, he was this rich kid, and he's this trust fund kid, and. It didn't buy him happiness at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's this vein of tragedy going through his family. In fact, just today, Jennifer, his his niece was sending me um, via Facebook Messenger 
mm-hmm. pictures from this old scrapbook of his that she found. Oh, wow. And, and all of this one of a kind, you know, like a pay stub from one of his bands. And, and that's a wonderful thing, too, is to have gotten to know his family members. And, and God bless them that, that they gave me their trust to tell their story. And again, this book is called Calling Me Home, and it's, it's really from the heart. And it's very Southern in its motif. And, and even if you've read other Graham Parsons books, this one's different. I'm going to have to go get that one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I definitely am. Well, as I say, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. And before I let you go, is there anything that you'd like to refer the listeners to ha- about your work or your books or really anything that you'd like sure, to share? Sure. Sure. Well, it, you know, I, Amazon is the storehouse if you want to just go and find any of my material. My last name's spelled K E A. L-I-N-G. Now, The Life of the Party book is also out in audiobook. Oh, yeah. And it's very wonderfully done, and it's gotten great reviews. So if you're interested in it that way. But anything and everything I've written is on there. And, um, you know, I just hope it, it gives you a sense that Florida is about much more than the theme parks. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of history and culture here. And it's, um, it's a labor of love. It really is. And it's nice to help get Brownie the recognition she's deserved for so long. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again, Bob. I really appreciate it. Okay, Jennifer. It's been a pleasure. The time flew. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.